Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode uh, 23, part two, which is the Iraq or uh, OIF portion of the Endless War case study, our breakout uh, session uh, cases here with uh, um, veterans and PhDs, uh, as opposed to just, just civilian PhDs, so different format for this podcast. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. Uh, your hosts, uh, joining me today, my fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Heidi Lane. Heidi, welcome. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks. Did you want an introduction? Oh, I'll, 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 we'll get to that in just a second. I'll, I'll uh, go move around. Next, uh, Colonel Matt Nischwitz. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Next is uh, Colonel Pat McCarthy, PhD. Welcome, Pat. John, thank you. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Shaw, PhD. Mike, welcome. Thanks, John. <laughs> All right, as we as we started out with the Afghanistan podcast, uh, since we have a veteran panel here, all of our U.S. Army members. Uh, of the strategy and policy department are, uh, are represented today. So we'll go ahead and just uh, start out by saying um, uh, where, you, where you served in, in your time in Iraq. And, um, and Matt, why don't we start this one with you? Hey, good afternoon. Uh, my experience as an Army logistician, um, primarily in OIF-1, uh, although during that period of time, I was uh, serving in a cavalry regiment and another tour, uh, 15 months as part of the surge uh, as an Army logistician um, in the um, Bakuba area of Iraq, northeast of, of Baghdad. And the first deployment was in Sadr City. Mm. Outstanding. Thank you, Matt. Pat, we'll go to you next. So my... Uh... My service in Iraq is long in story. 2003, I was a mechanized infantry company commander with the 3rd Brigade 3ID out of Fort Benning, Georgia. So I participated in the initial invasion in 2003. Uh, after that, I uh, reclassified to become a psychological operations officer, and I spent 2007 and 8, uh, as Matt said, as part of the surge for 14 months in southwest Baghdad, primarily around the Mahmoudiyah, um, Lutafia, um, definitely like what would be classified as the triangle of death area came home for eight months and then came back and supported uh, multinational corps and usfi strategic communication objectives with a um, specialized task force with regards to psychological operations and information operations so all said and done 2003 to um, early 2004 seven eight home for eight months nine and ten Thank you, Pat. Mike, we'll go to you next. Uh, I kind of smatted the, uh, I'm kind of the peanut butter and jelly in the middle of that sandwich. So I was there as an, as an aviator 
in uh, NMDB or multi uh, multinational division Baghdad um, and flew over that direction for between eight and nine. So just at the tail end of the surge uh, and then post as the, uh, we slowly started to draw down uh, welcoming Pat back into, back into country. Awesome. Good deal. Um, so as a Marine, I uh, was, uh, I was there during the, uh, the Anbar awakening in Anbar province. Um, first tour as a staff officer, just dealing with actually uh, infrastructure, uh, logistics of the mess staff uh, in uh, 2007, uh, came home for a short six months and went back in uh, 2008 as a battery commander. Um, and that was on the back end of the surge. So things had quieted down uh, and I had a headquarters battalion. So mostly dealing with, um, uh, you know, morale welfare of, uh, of troops. So inward focus versus, versus outward focus in, in 2008. Um, but yeah, but Heidi, as a, our subject matter expert civilian, what's uh, your familiarization with the region? Yeah, um, thanks, John. I'm, uh, you know, I've, my training was all in Middle East and Islamic studies. So, uh, but I've never served uh, and I was not deployed and I have not been to Iraq. Uh, I have watched it from the periphery and I know, you know, about the things on the periphery and inside, but I have not experienced it. Mm -hmm. And I have watched uh, and learned from you that is you and all of the people that were in your position for the last 20 years. So I have, uh, I have some respect for the, uh, your willingness to contribute. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you, Heidi. So I thought we would um, start out the, um, the conversation today because, um, uh, uh, you know, Mike and Pat, you, we, we all did the, the Afghanistan uh, portion of this podcast um, together. And this is, a, this is an interesting um, um, new theater, new peripheral theater in what we sometimes term as the global, global war on terror. We decide to open up a theater in Iraq, Afghanistan. We go in 2002, went really well to post the Taliban, and then... Uh, 2003, the Bush administration decides, hey, we're going to go topple Saddam because that's going to promote security, peace, stability in the Middle East, get rid of a terrorist supporting regime, find weapons of mass destruction, uh, build a Jeffersonian democracy and everything will hopefully make the, the region in our image. And, and Heidi, you, you had this, um, you know, the, uh, posited somewhat similar to this question today in, in your lecture about this topic. Um, you know, why, why, do, why did we open up another theater when ostensibly attacking Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan? Um, and yeah, what, so Heidi, why don't we start this one with you? Okay, um, you know, why do we open another theater? It was, it's pretty clear right now, and it was maybe even clear then, but now there's subsequent documentation and, and declassification on this that there were influential members within the administration, the Bush administration, uh, who really felt that Iraq was uh, not only a rogue state that had not complied with many different uh, UN Security Council resolutions, that they were proliferating, mm -hmm. that, and that they uh, would inhibit and perhaps even contribute to the global uh, to the to al-qaeda that they may support even al-qaeda and that 
even if they did not do that, that was the weakest argument, I think, of all, uh, that they, in fact, had weapons of mass destruction that could further destabilize the Middle East. And so, in my mind, it was very, very peripherally related to the objectives that were set laid out in the War on Terror. And, uh, and you know, from that time until today, I think it was a colossal mistake that will be long remembered and hard to forget in American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and so for, uh, uh, for my veterans here, I, I, I remember being a young aggressive captain at the time and thinking, yeah, let's, let's go, let's go get them, right? Let's go, let's go beat up on somebody here. Cause that, that passion that we talk about, Claus Whitson uh, passion of, of the Trinity was, was certainly high at the time. But I guess I want to, I'll tweak the question slightly for you is, is that compared to how you felt at the time to compared to what you know now, what, what do you think about this, this opening up of this secondary or, or another theater in, uh, in Iraq after uh, uh, what was going on in, in, the, in the world? And Mike, let's go ahead and start this one with you. Sure, John. So my, my take on this is, I kind of alluded to this during the Afghan lectures, that as you hear both my timelines, they were all on the back end of surges or after the initial invasions. And so I have read, being able to reflect upon, it's interesting when we talk about alternate theaters or at least with theaters open alternate emphasis and seeing how resources, needs, um, attention, focus uh, shifts throughout. So, you know, a post surge when things are slowly gaining under control, momentum is building. You know, what I saw at the very tactical and operational level was, you know, the, the request for aviation to number one, be able to move people around the battle space as needed. And as an attack aviator myself, it was to be able to suppress the rocket men that surrounded Baghdad, threatened the IZ in the green zone, the international zone, and um, to allow, to allow um, government to function. Um, and so, you know, looking back on that, it's just, inter I could, it's just interesting to see, and my thoughts are, so I, I you know, at the time, I, I, don't, I didn't really have any policy decisions. My nation asked me to go to, uh, to Iraq. You know, I, I know what my mission was. Um, I move out, you know, and, and didn't have any qualms about doing so. Um, looking back on it, I don't know that I have any more qualms about doing it, but it's just interesting to see where the emphasis, because at that time, eight, nine, emphasis is moving back to Afghanistan, right? And so, and Iraq starting to, to draw down and you can just, you can just see and feel the momentum and looking at what we were asked to do and how we were asked to do it. Um, I just think it, it's, uh, it's interesting to reflect upon from that, um, from that perspective. But otherwise, I don't have a you know position as to you know what I thought about going in. My nation asked me to serve, or I volunteered to serve. My nation said we're going to Iraq, and there's a reason to be there. Uh, you know, had no issue moving in and doing as needed. Okay, awesome, Pat. We'll go to you next. So, I, I appreciate this question in many different ways. Than one, right? Um, and linking it to the Afghan and the ISIS discussions that um, have come up you know, with, within, you know, our, our scope of study here, right? And you, you may find this amongst your veteran population, okay? And, and as Michael said, right, like his experiences in combat theaters were on the downhill of surges, okay? Mine were all, seemed to have always been, at least, you know, at the tip of invasion. I equate that to like being a football player and just like 
you know, and, and a profession of arms, like this is what we're trained to do. This is what we want to do. This is our calling, right? Michael said it, right? Like I volunteered to serve. So initially, right, at the tactical and operational task purpose, you need me to go secure this military objective, done, clear, done, right? And, and the people that I led fought their heart out to achieve those objectives. Uh, and I appreciate that. The scholar hat, right? So my PhD and my dissertation actually attempted to examine using uh, Iraq as a case study. Could we export democracy through military intervention, right? And, and I found some comparative case studies in the, in the 20th century that showed where democracy did flourish in a post-military invasion society. Iraq's not one of them, you know, from many different aspects. The scholar hat on me says, what were we actually trying to achieve, right? Even if they're a rogue state, fine, okay, fine. But what was the political objective of what we were trying to do? Was it trying to supplant democracy and build flourishment? Then we failed at achieving our political objective, right? And um, a lot of blood, treasure, time, energy, you know, so on and so forth. You talk about passion, Afghanistan was definitely a war of necessity. Revenge, you know, Iraq was a war of choice. We chose to open that periphery, secondary theater, right? And I am, I am still examining the undertones and the underlying factors, even though there's great war stories and episodes of heroism, and I'm not discounting those, but at the same time, why? You know, all said and done. And I think that uh, for our students here, um, that's an important question to ask of why, what, and what do we seek to achieve? Thanks, John. Thank you. Matt. I just, I would start by saying Klauswitz would say you open a secondary theater when there's opportunities for something exceptionally rewarding. And in fact, as my colleagues have, have mentioned, this seemed to be a distraction from what should have been the primary theater in Afghanistan. Um, but in fact, Iraq for several years becomes the primary theater. From my personal experience as a lieutenant, a platoon leader, in 2003, arriving shortly after uh, the fall of Saddam Hussein, uh, there was definitely not much of a plan for what was to happen. Maybe we were too successful in the conventional fight to Baghdad and the removal of Saddam Hussein uh, to the point that there wasn't time to plan for what was to follow. Uh, I'm not sure how we missed that step. Um, but it, it certainly seemed as though there wasn't much of a plan for what was to happen next. And, and again, as a second lieutenant, I actually kind of remember, um, you know, platoon sergeants and other folks who had more experience at the time saying, you know, we'll be out of here in six months. Um, and other folks who were saying, hey, we're going to build these, um, you know, bases out in, in the, um, in, in the non-urban spaces. Um, and, and we'll move to these non-urban spaces and help uh, establish the government. Uh, and, and that never really seemed to come to fruition. Uh, so something between the reason for going and, and then having the plan for how we would, the strategy for how we would actually execute that was certainly missing. Go ahead, Mike, you have a response to that. Yeah, no, I, I just want to follow that up with a question to Heidi and to Pat, just because some of you guys have studied this a little more specifically than I have. And my question, I guess, goes to 
some of the reading that I've done has alluded to the fact that the planners, uh, both political, possibly the military, were under the belief that we could chop off the head in a certain percentage, right down to a certain line, and right that would go away, and then the government would continue to be able to run itself. Um, and then we know we went into debathification where we just eliminated the entire structure. I mean, with the removal of the bath party, is there a, is that where, where was kind of not the decision, but where is the belief that, Hey, if we take 20% of the bad guys, what we deem bad leadership out, the comfort, the government and system will continue to run. But in this case, right, we took top 20% out and then some, and the entire nation collapsed. So it wasn't to what Matt mentioned that there wasn't a, as we used to call back in the day, phase four, right? There wasn't the, the final phase planned out like, or was that truly the belief that we didn't need that phase because the government was gonna be able to sustain to some degree, and then we would just help bolster and continue as a, and then instead it was kind of like a deck of cards and went, oh crap, or, you know, um, Jenga, and you pulled the wrong block and the whole thing just collapsed and the structure's out. What What was your take based on your research, if, that, if I was clear? Um, Why don't we start with Heidi on that? Yeah, you know, I think some of the net assessments were extremely powerful in the lead up to Iraq, which really was not as long as one might think, but the resident arguments were all there and they were they were essentially, you know, in the briefcase of those who advocated for it. Um, so the, the counter arguments were all about why you shouldn't do it. The reasons that were there that, that were pro-invasion uh, were really very good one and they were very honorable ones, I think, in many cases. For example, that Iraqis themselves have lived under this really awful regime for a very long time. And this was fueled incredibly by expatriates themselves had every reason to see hope in this solution. Uh, the arguments about education level as compared to Afghanistan actually were really prevalent, which is Af uh, Afghans, you know, you can never say that there was a time when Afghans were all uh, educated, that they had middle class, that they had, you know, a, a mo basically a modern society, whereas in Iraq you could make that case. And so there was a real feeling that you could breed, or not breed, you could, you could seed democracy in that kind of environment because people were ready for it. They wanted it. They, they knew uh, they knew the trappings of it and they would, would they would welcome it. And I think very much that there were many, many Iraqis who felt that way inside and outside Iraq. Okay. But the problem is, is that I think maybe the main thing um, I could probably speak to many is that we as the United States and maybe even a lot of other countries did not understand the nature of authoritarian rule that the Ba'ath Party is not 20%. The Ba'ath Party is 100%. So that from every level of society, you can't not be a part of the Ba'ath system because that is very hazardous to your village, to your home, to your family, to your tribe. And so in some way or another, everybody is somehow implicated. And that includes Shia, that includes everybody, if you want to survive. So when you pop that off, and the, and the government actually falls, there are a lot of people with a lot of, uh, a lot of grievances who also don't know who's gonna rule the country. I mean, it's a scary moment if it, when that happens. And I, for one, was 
really quite surprised that the information mechanism didn't come down faster. And I think that must have been a that must have been a, a deliberate choice by the United States because I think most people who knew anything about Iraq knew that once you take out that information node, Ministry of Information in particular, that place is going to fall. And that that is what happened. Uh, I think. I mean, I'm sure it happened in, in different ways. There were aftershocks, but that information node, that's when Iraqis knew the government was gone. Okay. And their basic needs, the things that need to happen in that are number one, you need to figure out who's in charge and no one knew that. Uh, and you have to provide basics for your family, for your community, and no one knew who was gonna deliver that. Right. So that, that creates uh, a lot of confusion, fear. They didn't have a record of having information from outside that could be relied upon. I mean, yes, people could get radio and things like that, but the, uh, the habits that are formed in a repressive society like that last a lot longer than the society itself. Would you then say that the seeds that you mentioned before of being able to see democracy we're seeing effectually taking place in the long run, even though, I mean, wouldn't you, we could argue that, that to some degree, right, it's not, it's not American democracy, but Iraq, although fragile, I, I think it's fair to say, is, is a functioning democracy as they've designed it. Is that, would that, you know, so are those seeds taking place as they move? I mean, or is that, or is that just, I don't know. Well, I'll let, I'll let somebody else answer, but I, I think that we overestimated the shock that it, that it causes when you completely remove a system. Okay. And we also underestimated how fast that would happen, I suspect. And, you know, everything, the bureaucracies, every functioning ministry, people fled. Mm -hmm. And rightly so, you know, um, right to include Saddam Hussein. So I think that in and of itself was something that even shocked Iraqis a little bit, but there was no immediate replacement for that. And you can't grow up in a society like that without fearing for social order, because everything that you know depends on those connections that come from finding a safe place within that regime. Pat, you uh, look like you had a uh, answer to that. Well, you know, th there's multiple facets of this, to, to this case study, right? Uh, um, and you almost have to break it down as the military has done almost in the campaign phases, right? So three and four, as Heidi, as Heidi has kind of talked about, right? Like we tore down the regime, okay? You asked, like we decapitated it. We did it with brilliance, military brilliance, okay? Um, and, and we've um, intimated that there, has not, there was not much like what next after we tear down the regime. Is that a executive level failure? Is that a you know Department of State failure? Is that a military failure? We can go back and post hoc, you know, examine and pick that apart. I don't know. You know, all of a sudden, I really don't know because um, you know, not only did we tear down the institutions that maintain authoritarian rule, we also had some um, misgivings about what is Ba'ath Party rule in Iraq versus what is Ba'ath Party rule in Syria. You know, um, just our understanding of Arab politics, the role of the Iraqi army, 
the history of the coup of the Iraqi army in the past. Um, so we, we went into holistically as a, as an administration, right. As a government with some assumptions and that's uh, that's a dangerous place to be when it comes to achieving military and political objectives, because you either confirm or you discount an assumption. And if you if you confirm it, it becomes a fact. Right now, with regards to Iraq and democracy, right? You ask, are the seeds there? Or Michael asked, are the seeds there? Okay, uh, you know my specific nuanced research says. Yes, and Heidi, and I appreciate that, right? Heidi and I have actually never talked about this subject, right? But the seeds of democracy were there. They had experience with political participation. They had, they were, they were a pluralistic society. There was degrees of like representation through multiple facets, even though there was an authoritarian military governance, right? But when we, the United States came in, invaded, ripped down the regime, and supplanted it with our own type of civil uh, administration. And this really highlights, right, like the importance of civ-mill relationships within the U.S. government, right? Okay. Um, you know, Sanchez and Bremer, left hand, right hand, not, I mean, literally, okay, like making decisions without even having dinner that night. Like, what are you going to do tomorrow, Paul? I don't know, Ricardo. I'm thinking about debathification, signing executive orders that now Ricardo has to go follow through, right? And, and I close with this, right? We ripped Saddam Hussein out of a spider hole, you know, up into Crete. The man, when he came out, was like, I am Saddam Hussein. I'm the president of Iraq. I'm willing to negotiate. We missed an opportunity there to help, okay, actually build the next Iraq. And by even telling the guy, like, you're not going to be part of it, you know, all said and done. Instead, we pressured our Iraqi counterparts to put them on trial for war crimes, which you need to be held accountable for. But um, the sensationalism of it, right? I could talk about this for hours, Sean. I, no, yeah. I, I, so I want to, I want to actually add some reinforcing fires, uh, Pat, and I usually don't do this on my you know, on this podcast, but seeing as though I am also kind of participant slash the host, I'll, I'll do that. Um, so there were, uh, and it, it goes back to the question that you posed, Mike. Phase four, there were, and Heidi mentioned this as well, there are plenty of people who were saying, hey, phase four is going to require 400,000 troops. Tony Zinni, Marine General, former CENTCOM commander. Tommy Franks, Army artilleryman, by the way, but another former CENTCOM commander saying, don't do this, bad idea, here's what it's gonna take if you wanna do this. But speaking of your civil relations comment, Pat, Don Rumsfeld is the SECDEF at the time. Um, I, I served at headquarters Marine Corps during this period and I, did, I, did, I wasn't briefing Rumsfeld as a young captain, but I knew people who were. You didn't tell something to Rummy that he didn't wanna hear. He would stand there and berate you, scream at you until you gave him a different answer. That's just the way it was. It was a toxic civ mill relations climate because he had been sec deaf before because he was an old man, you know, pick your, pick your mirror of psychological factors. Right. But if you said, sir, in order to rebuild Iraq, we're going to need 400,000 troops to garrison the country to do phase four operations. That was just not a palpable answer. There was, I mean, this was in the headlines about the, the Tony Zinni uh, plan versus the, the Bush administration ignoring this. So yeah, anyway, um, enough on that point. 
So to shift to, to pull a question out of this and, uh, and uh, whatever. So we do make the decision to debathify. It's a bad decision. It immediately goes south. Um, we then try to essentially nation build and we try to build a government and an army from the ground up, man equipped, train something that looks like our image, both in Jeffersonian democracy and in um, a military force that is um, not indigenous, more like you know the US Army light or, or US military light, right? Um, so how did we see this play out on the ground? One, why, you know, why try to do this? Why do we think it's a good idea? But and then how do we see it play out on the ground in terms of, of, of personal experience? Um, Mike, I'll, I'll throw this one to you to start out with. Oh, okay. Um, briefly to your point, uh, previous one we were just talking about, you know, phase four, size, people speaking. I just find it interesting the parallels between this and Afghanistan. Um, you know, when you look at the discussions of, you know, after the initial sur or the initial push into, right, and then ISAP being established and it's now a peacekeeping operation, no longer a war front. Um, what is required for a peacekeeping mission? We've talked about this in other, other, other discussions, right, about the ratio of troops to provide that sense of security so that you can then build the military, you can then build the, the security forces, need the police, you know, as necessary, the baseline judicial in order to give the regular civilian confidence as Heidi was talking about the, the to reduce the level of fear of what's going to happen with me within my local village town etc um, I just find it interesting that you know we seem to have missed it there we seem to have missed it in Iraq we seem to have you know this is again a common theme of we're jumping to all these situations where people say we're going to need more this is going to be bigger and yet we we and even today right we we seem to keep wanting to do things smaller we keep you know right we're now to the age of drones connecting over the horizon operations are going to cover what we need while we have small forces on the right. We don't want these big footprints. We want to go micro. Um, I don't know if that's just foreshadowing of what, where we are and what we do. And if that's a foreshadowing of the struggles we're going to have to come that sometimes smaller, although easier to manage may not do, do its bidding. I mean, I don't know. That's, um, but to your, to your question, um, John, as far as, uh, success or not, I had very little interaction. Um, my only connection, I guess, would be the fact that I is, is in the uh, following podcast on ISIS when we talked about that. I was there in July of 2014 when everyone thought Iraq was going to fall and Baghdad was going to fall as ISIS was pushing towards the capital and we weren't sure what we were going to do with the, um, with the embassy. My point there is that you saw the Iraqi National Army and security forces being pushed back and then they held. Now, granted, there was U.S. involvement and support to do that but they held right. and then they pushed forward. Yep. And then, and you know, kind of the point of my seed comment that I mentioned to Heidi and the, to Pat is that while fragile today in 2023, there is a national army, there is a national police force. They are, they are managing at some level of democracy of there. And so while it may not be an overwhelming success, success, let's go dancing. Right. Although a fragile state, with a lot of you know problems in that in that region and stuff going on there, Iraq is somewhat of a success. And so I think to that side, they were more able than Afghanistan for sure to handle a more U.S.-centric military. They could handle the equipment, they could handle the training. They were willing to function, and maybe that's part to what like Heidi was saying. The culture was more had taste of this previously in these kind of aspects. They were more authoritarian, so their gut, their military was very locked up. So when you come in with rules and leadership like that. I don't, I didn't see there was much of a, of an issue there. So that's okay. my take. Yeah. Good deal. 
Pat, we'll go to you next. Oh, we are about to really get like knee deep in like some scholarly academic <laughs> debates here, right? I mean, um, and we should definitely reconvene and you know a continuation of this forum. Um, I mean, there, I think there's multiple aspects that you could look at, right? From is, is Iraq a success today versus 2015 versus 11, you know, so on and so forth. I, I don't know, right? There, there are indications of authoritarian backsliding, you know, political representation, you know, from a political scientist hat, right? Um, you know, there, there's also aspects of like the uh, Human Freedom Index, like how free are they, you know, so on and so forth. Um, could they be in the future? Maybe, Michael. Maybe. Okay. I don't know. Right. But then we also have to be at least willing to examine like the aspects of uh, the institutional context of Iraq's history. Right. And that it was a British or um, colonial mandate that had like experience from British colonization, you know, back in the day. What was the impact of that over over time? Right. Um, but I also think that an, an astonishing aspect of this case study, right, is the willingness of the American military to become an adaptive learning um, organization that recognized that it needed to shift its fundamental approach, even a degree of its doctrine, some equipping, some manning, you know, at one time, John, right, like the Army was rebranding its artillerymen because we weren't shooting 155 long-range precision fires, right, to be infantrymen or convoy escorts, right, because they became task purpose, you know, available forces. And unless you go into a massive period of mobilization, which we were not willing to do as an all-volunteer army, okay, all-volunteer military, what do we have to do? We had to make do with what we had to solve, you know, the task that we were presented. So there's an adaptation, there's an interaction reassessment period that, that we went through to include like rewriting our entire approach, you know, which led to the publication of field manual 3-24, which believe it or not, right. More academics, Heidi may not at this more academics read the counterinsurgency manual than military officers. Like it was like the number one on the university of Chicago, like um, preferred reading list for, for a hot minute kind of neat when you stop and think about like what were we being examined from as a professional military force you know where are we being held accountable by our research counterparts so uh and i see some other questions popping up but um i'll hold there and definitely hey, excited to continue I, this on i should have pat i should have said this but um yeah so my second tour in iraq 2008 we were an artillery marine artillery unit but we were went under there as task force military police and yes, we did lose our minds and try to, you know, just figuring out how to train for that because our children don't know how to be military policemen. So that was fun. Oh, just, and just think about it, right? I mean, but I mean, it's a credit to the Marines and to artillerymen, right? Just think about the change, the change in mindset, the change in mission, like everything from people like I didn't join the the Marines or the Army to do this, you know, but yet, okay, I'll go do, I'll serve, and uh, you know, complete the task. So I was going to better branches. I went over as an aviator, and that's what I was trained to do. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Did you Matt, go over to the logistics? I think you did. 
I just in in talking about the 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 rebuilding of the Iraqi army. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out. Not only did we execute debathification, but we also uh, disbanded the Iraqi army, which put all of the security requirements on the U.S. and coalition forces, which which pulled a heavy strain. Whereas perhaps we might have been much more successful if we tried to leverage the Iraqi army that existed and weed out the folks who who might have um, had had other objectives of their own. Um, in early 2004, uh, as again as a lieutenant, I actually had the responsibility to recruit and train um, a scout platoon of what was then called the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps. So the the very initial rebuilding of the Iraqi army. Uh, I do have to say we were rebuilding that army in our image, and and I think as a result we to a large degree created a force that wouldn't be able to sustain without the presence of the U.S. And I, I mean, the one example that I'll give to, to keep it to my own experience is that when we redeployed at the end of our 12 month tour, we left the forward operating base that we were uh, working from Camp Marlboro uh, in Sadr City to those Iraqis that we had begun to train. And, and it wasn't long before um, that forward operating base was mortared and destroyed, and those forces were were largely um, disbanded. So um, it, it just it reminds me of you know the fact that when you try to build a force from our in our own image, uh, it's likely to we, we may think it's going to happen faster um, by doing by doing it that, and that's what we're comfortable with. But that's likely not to be enduring. And, and then I, I might just pose, I, I wonder, were we building from the ground up or were we just like in Afghanistan or similar to Afghanistan, were we really constructing this government and things from the top down? Um, I, I think that's a question perhaps worth worth exploring. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it strikes me, too. Uh, and I know Pat has a comment here, but but where I want to go next with this is um even though we say, or we're, we're saying, uh, maybe Iraq wasn't exceptionally rewarding according to the Claus Whitson dictum about opening a peripheral theater and maybe building an army like this in the US image wasn't good, yet for some reason it fails in Afghanistan, but it works in Iraq. And so maybe if you take the long view, it is exceptionally rewarding, I don't know. But anyway, Pat, let's, I know you had a response. So let's, let's go to you before we Well, I think Heidi had a perspective first. Okay, go ahead, Heidi. Um, I was just going to make a couple points about debothification because I think uh, it's really common to want to fixate on the military part, but debothification happens in every sector of society, intelligence services, public services, everything. And um, I personally think that that actually was the right choice, meaning disbanding what was there and i you know i can't speak to it in, in any capacity as someone who knows how to build a military or not or lead anything in that respect but i have a feeling that uh you would not be able to retrain well yes you can retrain but you really have to you, you have to take not the both party out of iraq you have to take uh the both party out of the, the people 
And if you've learned a certain way that that institution works a certain way, it's really hard, I think, to, to change that mindset about every aspect of military service. The intelligence services uh, being among the worst possible repressive organizations across the region, uh, and we're not just talking about Iraq, they have to go. All of those have to go because those are, those are absolutely the arm of uh, the central government to not to provide intelligence so the state can function and, and protect its security, but rather to make sure that you don't have a fifth column uh, across the board, whether it's in the military or not, so that you wind up having people in high level positions who are literally afraid of one another, like you and your fellow colonel afraid of each other. So th th that takes a lot. And so I'm not sure that our heartache about debothification is, is fair. It may have been, in fact, necessary. Mm. Um, one other thing, and then I, I will pass it to my colleagues. It's really hard to underestimate the degree to which our, some of our other allies and other neighboring states in the region wanted a weak Iraq. Uh, you, can't, you can't forget that because they did not want Saddam Hussein to have strength, that he was a threat, but they also did not want whatever came after to be in a position to threaten any regional uh, power. And so that includes whatever Americans or whatever the, the coalition was able to build, they did not want it to have teeth in a way that could export any kind of military force. If we wanted to build something that was internally functioning, that would, you know, pr uh, preside over Iraqis and keep them in check, that's what they wanted. And so, you know, and that includes Jordan. It includes certainly Saudi Arabia. It includes um, Kuwait. Most of the countries not only did not think that we did a good job, they didn't, you know, they, they certainly didn't want Iraq to turn into a regional state that had uh, vitality because it, in their minds, it posed uh, some sort of a threat. Sometimes it's along Shia Sunni lines, sometimes it's along other lines, but that's hard to deal with because they are also in the coalition. So that advice is being passed through and it's confounding uh, decision-making. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you, Heidi. Uh, go ahead, Pat. Just real quick, right along the lines that Heidi's talking about debathification. Um, and while it may not have been uh, a bad idea, right, to help sub, um, supplant political ideology at the state level from societal values and beliefs. Um, it's important to at least note, okay, especially in the, in the build, you know, after the defeat, the build in the future, right? The Iraqi army, which has had a long and storied important aspect of Iraqi military, of Iraqi history, not just military history, but just, you know, I mean, the Iraqi army put Saddam Hussein in power in the seventies, right? Through a coup. And the Iraqi army has a habit of just like driving its tanks to Baghdad, parking and saying, here's going to be the government. Okay. Other Middle Eastern countries also have that same uh, template. Okay. The army did exactly what the U.S. military and the coalition wanted it to do in 2003. Okay, and that has everything to do with experience that it faced in 1990, okay, with uh, Operation Desert Storm being overwhelmed by technology. We told them to go home and await further instructions. That, those further instructions never came. 
You know, they were expecting to be part of the inclusion of the next build to be included. They would have signed the bathification loyal. I mean, they would have signed it all right to, to like be part of the future, but they were alienated, you know, around 2004, which led to the Sunni insurgency, which then was amplified by the civil war, which, you know, thank the Lord that um, the awakening happening and Abdel Arakia, you know, stood up um, because then that's where people took back their country, you know, and as, as we imp, uh, implicated, right, when ISIS came along and tried to develop their proto-state, the, the, um, the standalone state of Iraq showed its wherewithal about uh, fighting back and pushing back. This is a great case study to look at winning the better peace. Heidi talked about it, right, from a regional perspective, right? What did the regional partners want, you know? They wanted a strong Iraq but not a super strong Iraq, right? Because Iraq also provided a counterbalance to Iran, uh, provided some checks and balances to other types of extremism, so on and so forth. So very complicated aspect to look at, uh, even in just three and a half hours in a seminar, um, you know, to, to, to pick apart. Thanks. So on the topic of, of winning a better peace, um, again, as we said, Afghanistan, and I know we're, we're kind of looking forward here, but it's, it's obviously still in the whole case. All of the things that happen in Iraq, do they have to happen the way they do to include the outside influences, i.e. ISIS, to give us uh, a, a nation that is now still there, as opposed to what happens in Afghanistan where that nation falls? Now, I know the key difference is the U.S. sends air power back in to defeat ISIS and, and soft forces, which we didn't do in Afghanistan. But why, you know, now if you look at it right now from the standpoint of, uh, of as we're recording this in, you know, February of 2023, Iraq seems to be somewhat of a stable democracy and, you know, obviously other regions not. Um, is it because they had to sort it out and figure it out for themselves in terms of all the upheaval that we went through with, as you mentioned, Pat, you know, the bathification, insurgency, civil war, and then outside actor ISIS coming in? Is, is that just what had to happen for the nation to kind of to kind of gel? Um, and I'll tell you what, since we, Matt, let's start this one with you since. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a, a, a long response. Um, in fact, I, I may even pose a, a, a different, slightly different question. Um, I mean, my question might be, isn't, well, well first, um, ISIS caused the Iraqi people to stand up for themselves. And, and um, much like Pat mentioned during the awakening and what happens and allows the reassessment and the surge to be successful is the Iraqi people began to stand up and take accountability for their own, their own nation. Uh, and in many cases, even though it's not necessarily clean, um, people began to put the nation above their religion or, or other types of things, at least for a time. Um, again, not clean, and, and there was certainly divide and, and issues there, but um, there was a, perhaps a heightened sense of nationalism, at least for a period of time. That seems to, there seems to be some, some issues and things kind of ebb and flow, but ISIS then brings another period of potential uh, nationalism uh, a rise of nationalism among the Iraqis to 
to stand up against ISIS. Um, I just wonder in the current day if the American presence isn't what's allowing this still fledgling democracy in Iraq to have some space to to work and figure itself out. Over. Okay, good deal. Uh, uh, Mike, let's go to you next. Uh, you know, Matt, I think I think you. I mean, again, what is it? Uh, history history doesn't repeat; it rhymes. We've we've thrown that out here several times. I think there's. Uh, I mean, you know, you look at what our involvement in Korea and what we promised there, and the air power that was continued, and then the dedication of troops on the ground of assisting, et cetera. Um, Vice Vietnam, complete pullout, financial reduction, and then up to South Vietnam to hold its own with the North um, to eventual collapse. I think, uh, I think it's a valid point, right? We see that same with Afghanistan. You know, as you said, you know, Iraq has surges of nationalism that allows us to find its own feet. And it, and it decides as a nation, or at least as a large population center to say, we're going to stand against this. And Af- Afghanistan made the same choice. They just don't see themselves as a national entity, right? So as, as it came to self-preservation and the right choices, it came into village or region or, you know, um, elder dominated, you know, what was the best, what was the best decision for the, for them there. Um, and I think that it doesn't matter how much air power you brought in. I think we would have, you know, we could have delayed the Taliban some more in Afghanistan if we would have used some air power, but again, it, it was, it's, I think it's a little bit different. I think, you know, your point there is that, you know, the Iraqi people, and to what Heidi said, there's seeds there. There's right. There's there's that surge. The, the plant wants to grow. The nation wants to live. It wants to be its own. Iraq wants to be Iraq. Uh, whether you know whether it's with the same borders, with the same stuff, we can get in. I mean, there's all those splits there between ethnic lines and on all that kind of stuff that that confuse the area. So um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's an interesting question that you you pose there, uh, Matt. You know, I think that's a great uh, a great way to look at it. I think that. U.S. has provided uh, the ability to grow, but as we said, it's been advised, it's been assisted. It's the stuff that we think we can do on the periphery. We're not committed with hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground. Um, I think we do well sometimes with that advise assist aspect with funding with some cover from the air. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, right? I mean, you know, to give to give a nation room to grow, you know, or a spot to try to find itself. I mean, right, sometimes it helps to have big brother or somebody there to provide that coverage. I think you can look through history and see that, that there's always some sort of assistance from the outside that allows a nation to find its footing um, and go there. I mean, even through, you know, French support on the seas to allow British naval power not to dominate for us in the revolution, right? I mean, there was some outside power that allowed us to gain a foothold and then allowed our nation uh, to grow. Um, so I think there's I think there's something to be said about external support that's not necessarily a negative. And I'm not saying you mean it's negative, but you know that's negative in general for our sport. Fair enough. Thank you, Mike. Pat, we'll go to you next. You know, in, in the scope of of discussing this, okay, military operations, political objectives, military objectives, right? What one gap that we have, you know, in the strategy and policy department is really looking at the peacekeeping operations of the Balkans right? Like the late 90s, 2000s, right? Because Bosnia and Herzegovina, okay, and Kosovo are partly free democratic institutions that were achieved through uh, military um, enforcement of successful political negotiations, right? I mean, all said and done. 
it was enforcement of the civil society and political institutions saying reforms are needed. In Iraq, it was an external pressure that was placed upon civil society and political institutions very violently in the latter. You know, political and military institutions were tore down, which created this vacuum of what was going to be achieved. Okay, if you look at like the Freedom House Index right now, today, right, like Iraq is nine out of 10, you know, on the bottom aspect of democratic institutions. Okay, I think Iran, okay, believe it or not, is like 10 of 10. Okay, North Korea actually places above uh, Iraq. What am I getting at, right? We were all told to go there. You, me, Matt, Michael. Okay. Heidi has studied our actions, our interactions of this, right? Is building democracy a viable political objective? You know, all said and done. I don't know, right? I mean, I participated in it. I was told to go do it. Okay. But as I look back, right? It was clear cut to me, John, what was being achieved in Afghanistan. Clear cut. As I look back on Iraq, why were we there? What were we doing? What did we seek to achieve? You know, so on and so forth. If they can become a democratic institution in the next 20 years, there's still lots of reforms that need to happen within Iraqi political society. Okay. I'm actually more optimistic for them than Afghanistan, just based on culture institutions, so on and so forth. So don't really know exactly, um, you know, from a scholarly perspective on the what's next on, on this discussion, but I am definitely open to any type of questions from yourself or from our colleagues on, on my thoughts on this. Okay, Heidi. Yeah, I just, um, you know, first of all, I take everything that Pat said and I, and I will say that one thing that you can't walk away from, uh, at least I feel as an American, is uh, even if Iraq survives and it does become democratic, and, and, and even if most of the Iraqis, at least who I've spoken to, say they're glad Saddam Hussein is gone, which always surprises me. Um, the original sin of making a decision on the basis of false information and feeding that is not gone. And that hurts your, that hurts your civil military relations. It hurts a generation of people who, uh, you know, fought there. And I don't think you can talk that one away. So I think, you know, I had a teaching partner a few years ago who used to say, you know, um, if, if the decision makers would only have apologized, I would have felt like it was worth it. Hmm. That I think that's our, uh, that's, that's kind of an internal thing in the U.S. I think you, um, it's hard to, for me anyway, to let that one go. But on another uh, front, I also think that unfortunately, the invasion and the aftermath have set in motion another problem that uh, existed before but is now much more of a robust problem, and that is whether Kurdistan survives as, an, as a separate entity. Because yes, it is part of Iraq, uh, technically, but in practical terms, it has, Kurdistan has aspirations that go way beyond the state of Iraq. And we are not completely, uh, we are responsible for part of that empowerment, 
but we haven't really come to a political decision that validates it. Um, and moreover, the Iraqi, uh, Iraq, Turkey, Iran right now are fighting a proxy war in this area over things that are related to that issue. And I think that one is hard to put back in the box because Iraq, if it, if it doesn't include Kurdistan, and let's say Kurdistan becomes a separate entity, it, is, uh, it makes for a weaker Iraq, it makes for a resource, a more resource poor Iraq, and it continues to feed this sort of larger regional conflict that unfortunately is you can't put back in the box. Yeah, that, that's a great, great point, Heidi. You know, I, uh, what is it? Um, what's the meaning of Peshmerga? Those who face death, right? Uh, like <laughs> you could, uh, you, not to make predictions about the future, but you could easily see a major regional war um, with, with all you know, Iraq, uh, Turkey, uh, Syria, Iran, because of the Kurdish question. Um, but uh, yeah, leave that one alone. Well, um, so we're pushing on an hour here. We'll ask a final question. Um, key takeaways, key observations. What does this tell us about the future or just, just observations in general? You know, uh, seeing as though Iraq is a somewhat functioning democracy now, was this, if we take the long view, was this the right call? Was, is it exceptionally rewarding since we do have a stable ally partner in the, in the Middle East? Uh, was it just because of oil? You know, there's a couple of rabbit holes you go down with this one, but, but final thoughts and key takeaways. Um, and why don't we start with you, Pat? Okay, um, I think that there is a lot of great lessons that, um, you know, burgeoning scholars and military professionals can ask, both to help reconcile themselves with the military objectives and tasks that they have to have, you know, that they've been charged to, and then also understanding their role as a civil servant and a functioning democracy, right? And while it's not necessarily our place to reconcile or what we are, what we doing, you know, politically feasible, achievable, you know, so on and so forth. Okay. But being able to at least reconcile your military objectives with stated political outcomes is an important element of being a military professional in regards to this case study. The second part of my response is, don't underestimate the power of history and political undertones when you're charged with a military task, because history does matter. As Michael has said, it may not repeat, but it definitely does rhyme. We see that playing out from long before Desert Storm inside uh, Iraq uh, specifically. So thank you. Awesome. Mike, I'm going to you next. Uh, I'm probably on the same line as Pat, you know, the, something I mentioned with the students that I have, seniors and juniors, right, is the conversation of depends on what, what pane of glass you're looking through at the time. Uh, to Pat's point about history, right, it's, we can look back and we can lay out all the things that have happened between now or between, you know, invasion and now and say, and we can reflect and say, was it a good decision or a bad decision, right? And we can point out the the off-ramps we potentially had. We can look at the initial choices as, you know, as Pat referred to, you know, where it was the, you know, was the ambassador sitting down with the, you know, the chief of mission and having conversations at the, you know, at a nightly, was the mill sit mill relationship taking place the way it should have. And we can make a decision about that. But the other pane of glass, right, is the mirror in front of ourselves. And all you can see is yourself and the time 
right? And the clock that you have right now. And, and it goes to what, uh, you know, Professor Mark Janess mentioned today and other professors have mentioned before. It's the, uh, it's the idea that, you know, people make rational decisions and, de and, and somewhat decent decisions with the information they have. Unless, the, unless we can look through history and find an ulterior motive and say they were deliberately you know, skewing the information for a reason, um, you know, uh, we have to hope, and that's why we, we in the U.S., you know, we elect certain personnel and, you know, we elect our politicians, and that's why we have the systems that we do to give us the opportunity to hope that we have the right leaders to make the right decisions in complex situations at the right time. And that's what I would offer to, to all the professionals as they go forward looking at this, is understanding that although history gives us a whole great ability and we need to study it to understand decisions we've made in the past to see if we can make better choices in the future, understand you're not gonna have that depth of knowledge necessarily at your fingertips when you're making the decision for tomorrow. And you're not gonna know that if I turn left at this light, you know, am I going to get into a car wreck or if I turn right, right? You don't know which way is going to lead to that accident. You just, you got to make the turn you need to make and hopefully you have all the information you have and it can make the best decision you can. So the pane of glass, I think is a very, uh, is a very interesting takeaway um, with this case, with any case study, but with this in particular. Okay. Awesome. Matt. Yeah, maybe I'm just I'm probably dovetailing on, on most of what's already been said here, but I think a big takeaway for me is as military professionals, as as um, as more senior military leaders that that we become, we've got to we've got to push for for the political objectives um, that allow us to know where where what the end game looks like, so that we can build a strategy to get there. Um, and we've got to have that candid conversation with the civilian leaders about what what comes after we would accomplish um, the, an initial political objective. So, so what's next to come? Um, our experiences in Iraq, at least my experiences in Iraq, remind me that um, there's a requirement to continually reassess. And when you get it wrong, it's okay to admit that you've gotten it wrong. And the better to admit it earlier rather than later, make the adjustments and, and move forward. Even if that means potentially acknowledging that the cost has exceeded the value of the object and the object must be renounced. Um, my final thought might be, um, and perhaps this is a, a question, which is, I'm not sure that an expeditionary force can defeat an insurgency if the home team doesn't, in some form or fashion, um, step up and really take accountability and help in that process. Um, I'll stop there. Thanks. Yeah, great, uh, great point. I, I'll, uh, I'll double down with a final thought and, and put it in the Claus Whitson context of um, understanding the, the nature of the war. The first, the most far-reaching uh, idea is, you know, if, if, if your object is such where um, your military leaders are telling you, you know, phase four is going to take uh, 400,000 troops to, to stabilize and whatnot, then, okay, is it really worth doing this? So just don't, don't just ignore the advice and, and, uh, you know, w uh, wishful thinking uh, a different answer and, and hope for the best. Um, yeah, that uh, that I think is a key takeaway for me. But Heidi, we'll end with you. Well, I'm going to just say um, that, first of all, I am very, uh, frankly, honored to be included in this group because this, well, and I say this, you know, I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm a political scientist, but 
this is the first time in 20 years that I've had this kind of conversation that would be available to students and other well, the officers in the student body and the other professionals. Uh, and it seems to me that it has always been necessary. And even more so because it's pretty clear that most of the country has, with, with the exception of those who served and those who took part in it, have kind of forgotten about Iraq. Hmm. We'll continue to forget about it. And so it's really incumbent on those people who have had the exposure, who have thought about the questions, who have, you know, basically been kept up at night for years thinking about it, so much so that it drives you to write a dissertation, which is really a, uh, <laughs> really a punishment. <laughs> if you don't write that, um, no one is going to, or someone is going to, and it's not going to represent the kinds of conflicts uh, that you have so, or had. And so um, I think, you know, you have to write it so that there's a represent a representation of what it is that you think happened so that other people don't take that narrative. Um, and um, I think that's, that's all I have to say. Well, I guess the last thing is who's buying beer. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely Pat. Definitely. <laughs> Outstanding. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you everyone. It was as always a fascinating and engaging discussion. Um, we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you.